This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Excellent. Well, good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> For those of you here, I guess those joining virtually, good morning, good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are in the world. Um, I'd like to thank the organizers for the invitation to join us, uh, to have me join you for the symposium today. And I do want to start with a little bit of a disclaimer. So my work is very human-centric. I study human populations who live at high altitude. Um, But I do have to say, um, there's a lot to be told about the remarkable journey that they're on. So the story I will tell today um, talks about these distinct paths that humans have traveled and touches a bit on their evolutionary history, some of the comparative aspects that I can incorporate, and then specifically um, some of the more recent evidence that we have for human adaptation to high altitude and what makes humans so unique. So I would argue that high-altitude regions are probably one of the most extreme environments occupied by humans, right? We all need oxygen to live. Um, And despite that, right, with with less oxygen available, people have persisted for many generations in this environment. Um, So here is a highlighted section of the Tibetan Plateau where people have lived perhaps 30 or 40,000 years, or at least occupied these environments for that amount of time, which is very incredible, right? So we have many generations for adaptation to occur. And then we look over into the Andes, we see that um, human populations have lived there about 12 to 14,000 years, so perhaps not quite as long, um, but do still exhibit some adaptations to high altitude. And then lastly, there are groups in the Ethiopian highlands where people have migrated into and out of high-altitude regions, uh, again, for hundreds of generations. And what's so fascinating about these human populations is that they really provide a natural experiment for us to look at human responses to hypoxia. So hypoxia is a term I'll be using quite a bit in this talk, and it simply means low oxygen. And during the breaks, I've been able to talk with some of the students who were involved in the Cardiff field course. And I just want to get a raise of hands. The number of people who have been to altitudes, maybe more than 14,000 feet. This is where some of our, oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. I think this is like the largest audience I've had um, um, who have been that high. That's fantastic. And so I'm sure each of you have your own stories about what it feels to be very acutely at high altitude or with less oxygen. And a lot of literature has focused on that. Our team also does a lot of research at the White Mountain Research Station here in California. Um, But some of the research I want to show you today looks at people who have lived at altitude for longer periods of time. So not just a visit, not just a trek, um, but really going to uh, areas and staying there for substantial amounts of time. So a lot of these people who stay for months or years are referred to as sojourners. They are not people who necessarily have the ancestry of of a Highlander. Um, These are people who would live at sea level. Typically, their ancestors lived at sea level as well. Um, But if you look at them over time, again, months or years, you might notice some changes to their physiology. Those would include hemoglobin concentration, right? This is something that's very commonly studied, hemoglobin being the molecule that binds oxygen and transports it throughout the body. Um, Lung volume is another commonly studied Uh, trait, breathing responses, something you'll hear more about later in the talk, and then oxygen saturation, right? So all of these things are changing when an individual goes and stays at high altitude. 
Uh, and that I'm showing you just because that's relative to sea level. And now if we think about relative to other highland populations, um, there are these other trends and things that are happening, and they appear to be distinct among these different groups. And so what I, I want to emphasize is that there is a lot of variation within these populations, within these traits, and I, I honestly don't want to generalize as much because I think that happens a lot in the literature, but really um, we can look within populations and try to figure out exactly what is happening in terms of their, of their adaptation. Um, but importantly as well, we have to think about this physiology as really a collection of traits, right? There isn't just one change that's gonna be a cure-all um, and help with low oxygen at altitude. And so some of these changes may be adaptive, on sort of the beneficial end of the spectrum, and others may be maladaptive. So let me take just a minute, and these are pictures taken by my colleague and good friend Tana in um, western China and into the Tibetan region, um, looking at hemoglobin concentration in Tibetan individuals. So these dashed lines simply mean that that is comparable, actually, to what you might expect to see if you were hanging out here in San Diego. Right? So there is not a huge increase in hemoglobin concentration, despite the fact that people are living, again, 3,500 meters, 4,500 meters, you know, 12, 13, 14,000 feet above sea level. Right? They, there just isn't that increase in hemoglobin. Lung volumes are something, you know, some studies say maybe they're increased, others maybe not. Breathing response, there's a bit of variation in this trait, and actually members of my team have collaborated with another CARDA member, Cynthia Bell, to do studies in Nepal um, to look at some of these responses and the variation in these responses um, within Tibetan highlanders. And then, of course, oxygen saturation. There is variation, but it is not fully recovered um, in these highland groups. Now, if we move to the other part of the world, where we also do research and look at the Andean population, they typically get labeled as being the ones with a high hemoglobin, right? And it turns out that there are some individuals who have a higher hemoglobin, but not all. And some of those individuals actually develop something called chronic mountain sickness, and it has many implications and many downstream um, negative effects that are really important from a clinical standpoint. Um, but it, it is very curious as to why some people develop this and others do not. But again, that speaks to this idea of inter, or indi, individual variation within a population. Um, other traits that have been looked at include lung volume, breathing responses, you know, perhaps they are blunted. Again, this is something we're studying actively um, in these groups, and then uh, tying that back to hemoglobin concentration and oxygen saturation as well. So now I'll take a step back. I've given you sort of the 30,000-foot view of human populations, um, and I just want to talk a bit about some of the comparative aspects as well. Um, so going way back in evolutionary time, we can compare across multiple different species who have been exposed to low-oxygen environments, so not necessarily high altitude, um, but we can look at these different time domains of hypoxia adaptation. Um, so this is a, a paper that was recently published by our team in a special issue we organized and um, in collaboration with the Center for Physiological Genomics here at UCSD. Um, just looking at different species, again, whether it's flying over the Himalaya or deer mice in the mountains of Colorado, um, even the naked mole rats who are buried underground and living with less oxygen, to marine mammals who are studied here at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography as well. Um, and what we're finding is that there are, in fact, some traits or things that are shared across these different populations. So um, I wish, right, we had more data from um, some of the high-altitude 
populations from the great apes. Um, but that is quite limited, right? So we have the mountain gorilla um, who live in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or, or in the surrounding regions that would be interesting to look at, um, but we have very limited data. However, there are studies within um, Gelada who exhibit signatures of high-altitude adaptation. Um, so these are signatures that are distinct from um, lowland uh, baboons. Uh, and what you'll notice is that they live in that exact same altitude or the elevation is exactly the same as some of the populations that we're studying. And so, of course, when I saw this paper, I had to, to see, you know, how does this compare to this little organizational chart that I have in my mind about different populations and how we um, adapt to high altitude? And interestingly, what we found from the study is that the hemoglobin concentration in this group is also similar to what's expected at sea level. Right, um, Lung volume was another trait that was studied in this particular uh, population, and we see that that is increased as well. So you're seeing some things that may be similar maybe to Tibetans or even Ethiopians who tend to have a lower hemoglobin concentration, and others like lung volume perhaps are more similar to the Andean population. And of course, right, because we're in the era of genomics, we have whole genome sequence data that can be mined in these groups. And it's fascinating that some of these same pathways that we are finding in our human studies are coming up as being adapted in um, some of these high-altitude gelata. And I think, you know, there are a few cases of specific genes, but I think it really speaks to the potential of looking at pathways and trying to understand the relevance of those pathways in compensating for low-oxygen environments. Which leads me back to talking about humans. <laughs> so we can look at a ton of data, as you've heard in many of the previous talks, um, to try to understand what might be going on, what genes or pathways might be essential for human adaptation to high altitude. And many years ago, we hypothesized that genetic targets of selection would be involved in something called the hypoxia-inducible factor pathway. So it's also known as the HIF pathway. So again, HIF or hypoxia is responding to low oxygen. Um, so hundreds of genes can be turned on. In fact, we think thousands of genes can be turned on in this pathway alone. Um, and just to emphasize the importance of this pathway, just a few years ago, um, some of the work that was done related to the identification of HIF was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. And so this is a really crucial um, pathway and important to understand in medicine. Okay, so we initially set out with this hypothesis that genes involved in this pathway, and genes just related to hypoxia sensing and response in general would be important for altitude adaptation. And then we scanned the genomes of populations, um, performing what we call selection scans, uh, to identify you know, what is in the overlap of genes that we expect or hypothesize a priori might be involved in adaptation and what regions of the genome show these extreme outlier signatures of selection. Um, but let's just pretend, right? We go back in time hundreds and hundreds of generations and we sample individuals from a population, we do the DNA extractions as we heard about in the first talk today, and we start to sequence their, in, in all the individual genomes, right? And if we lined those genomes up, and if I'm showing you just one chunk of that, the, those genomes lined up all together, and you can see these are little changes in the DNA sequence represented by these black dots, 
um, we might expect, you know, well, if there is something beneficial to a population, it would increase over time. So let's go fast forward 300 or 500 generations in time. We might see, you know, if we were to take another sample, that individuals in that population would have this beneficial change. And it would have these little genetic hitchhikers kind of along with it, right? So we get these patterns that sort of persist over time and eventually could become fixed in the population. And so we, we look for these different um, selection signatures, and they can tell us, you know, these are the important regions of the genome in this population that have been essential for survival. So that's really the key, right? So these are how we define our selection candidate genes. So I'll leave that little cartoon up there in the corner, but now show you some actual data that we have from our early studies in Tibet, where we identified, wow, look, one of these HIF genes, in fact, it was the one that was really noted in some of that Nobel Prize winning work, um, is under strong selection in Tibetans. So you can see the pattern of all of these Tibetan chromosomes that are lined up one on top of the other. Um, the next gene I'm showing you is actually um, the protein or the um, oxygen sensing protein in that HIF pathway. And then there's another gene that isn't within the HIF pathway, but important for oxygen sensing and response. And perhaps when I show you Han Chinese, so these are lowlanders chromosomes that are sort of lined up, again, just looking at this one particular region, um, you would hopefully appreciate that the pattern is not as dramatic. And so these are very convincing signatures of adaptation in the genome. And of course, right, I've told you about some of the physiology and that Tibetans have this relatively lower hemoglobin concentration. Well, we thought, okay, we have these important genes that we have these interesting phenotypes or traits you know, how do they relate to one another? And our group and others found that there was, in fact, a relationship with lower hemoglobin concentration um, and these adaptive signatures in Tibetan Highlanders. And we have since done additional physiological analyses, and I think it was the Human Activity, the CARTA Symposium, um, a couple years ago where I was able to discuss some of those findings as well. Um, and then in addition to the physiology, right, we're also learning more about some of the protein or the, the changes in DNA, such as the protein coding change in that oxygen sensor. And so every year, I just feel like there's more and more information that we're gleaning from these populations that are really starting to make me see that maybe we're, we're all not all that similar. I mean, there is that 99.9% um, similarity, but there is some difference, right, in our genomes, and they are playing important roles in these in high-altitude environments. And so, as was mentioned in the last talk, um, there's been a lot of work looking at archaic um, populations and their genomes. And so, as we were doing all of this work in Tibet, we were learning about the work that was being done. And again, a no another Nobel Prize was awarded um, just last year uh, for, for the understanding of um, Neanderthal and Denisovan um, archaic integration into human genomes. And so that was great because now we have another tool or another resource to compare um, with our Tibetan population. In fact, it turns out that um, that EPAS1 region, that gene region that we are focusing on, is actually intergressed, right? So it's associated with hemoglobin concentration in Tibetans, and its DNA sequence is more similar to an archaic Denisovan than any of the other publicly available genomes in the world, right? This is amazing. Um, so this is a nice example, and, and I thought it might have come up in that last talk um, as, as a beneficial change of, of adaptive integration um, into human genomes. 
So I think the story gets even better. <laughs> so we've been doing work in Tibet. Um, these archaic genomes are coming out. We're finding exciting things there. And then, you know, in the meantime, we're also working in Peru. Um, so we're doing a lot of the same physiological measurements, and of course, we're sequencing genomes, as others are, and um, identifying that there's evidence for adaptation at this same genetic region in this other population in a totally different part of the world. Um, does not have archaic integration. We actually tested for that. Um, so there is this, this signal in the genome of Andeans saying, you know, there is something special going on at, at EPAS1. Um, so what has been identified is that there is a protein coding change within this region um, that is under strong selection. And, of course, what did we want to test for? Like, are there any associations with the phenotypes that we have been studying, and specifically hemoglobin concentration? Because that was found to be associated in Tibetans. And long story short, we have found that there is a significant relationship um, and we're very interested in following this up. We've done some mechanistic studies using CRISPR that I don't have time to talk about today, um, but we are really intrigued by the fact that uh, the same locus, these populations, again, with different genetic histories, have sort of landed on some of these same um, genomic regions, but with different variants at play. Now, maybe I shouldn't be so surprised, because again, taking that comparative angle, um, there have been adaptive variants identified across various high-altitude species, um, so not just humans, that involve this gene. So another fascinating example, and again, I encourage you to check out any of our publications related to this. And then just to wrap up, um, I have told you a bit today that you know, there is variation both within and across human high-altitude populations. Some of that actually does overlap with some of our distant relatives, which is absolutely fascinating. And I think the more information, the more genomes that we get from different species, um, the better able we will be to sort of figure out some of these evolutionary processes. In fact, I almost like to think of humans as a model organism in the sense that we're getting so many genomes that we can start to ask really, really interesting questions. And at least from the high-altitude perspective, this EPAS1 variant, or that HIF2-alpha, um, it really shows this example that, you know, you have these different variants contributing to the same phenotype despite distinct evolutionary trajectories within our species. And um, I think it's really important to think about these multiple groups' adaptation to high altitude. And with that, I just want to thank all of the participants over all of the years who have been involved in our studies all over the world. I know it takes you know, a village to do work. I say it takes villages all over the world to make this research um, happen. Uh, I also want to thank a lot of members of my team, not all listed here, um, various collaborators that we have in different locations, and then all of you for your attention. So I look forward to talking with you all later. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.